like some of you, I'm not a huge fan of what is outside right now. I really, as I've been here for 10 years, I've gradually learned to dislike winter more and more as time went on. I think I left Toronto area thinking, hey, winter's not so bad. And then I came and moved to Ottawa and thought, wow, yeah, that really sucks. And gradually over time, like when I first got here, you know, the kids were still young, so winter was fun. You could go sledding, all those kinds of things. And then the last like four or five years, as my children aren't too interested in hanging out with me, I hate it more and more. And so this year I decided that this year was going to be the year. This year was going to be the year where I don't have to shovel as much. And I decided that this year is the year I am going to purchase a snowblower. And so I started in September with my research. I started researching. I started thinking, okay, what kind of a snowblower do I want? I decided I didn't want a gas snowblower. One, it's really, really expensive. And two, I'm not mechanically minded enough to keep it going. It'll probably only last a year. So I decided, okay, I want either electric, like plug-in, or I want to get a battery-powered one. I did all this research, and I kept looking at reviews. I read hundreds of reviews of snowblowers. I watched YouTube videos. I followed people's channels to go, okay, what are the best snowblowers for 2024 coming up? And I did all this great research. And finally, I concluded, okay, this is a snowblower I'm going to buy. I had to order it online, so I ordered it online. It got delivered. I was very, very excited. This was the year. It was a plug-in model. It wasn't very expensive. I recognize that. But all the reviews were fantastic. Four or five stars everywhere. Some magazine said it was the best snowblower you could buy for that price range. And I thought, this is great. I assemble it in November, and we get our first snowfall. I say, finally, finally, I have beat winter. I began to push, and it broke (laughs) within about 10 seconds, about two feet of snow. The way the handles were joined together had this plastic rivet that none of the reviews mentioned, and the pushing that I was doing just caused it to break. I still don't have a snowblower. (laughs) I listened to all these people, and they said, this is what you should buy. And I thought, yes, all the reviews were good. Some people were even in Canada who reviewed it, said it was good for our winters. And I thought, okay. But they were all wrong. It broke right away. Sometimes we can do all of our research, we can do all of our searching, we can all try to figure everything out as best as we can, but the people we follow still might lead us down the wrong path in some ways. We can do everything we can to try and get the right choice made, but still sometimes there's things that we might not be thinking of, and those people leading us might not necessarily get us where we want to go. It's easy to listen to other people. It's easy to read the reviews. But sometimes things don't work out the way you want them to. Sometimes we need people to follow, though. Actually, we always need people to follow. We need people to kind of point us in the right direction. Now, as I bought this snowblower, as the snowblower broke, as I quickly returned it to Home Depot uh, and said, this broke, and I wrote a review very quickly, one star. It broke within two feet. Because other people need that guidance too. Because they might go and buy it and think, hey, I'm going to get this great snowblower that all these reviews have said is perfect. But at least they know. In the early church, people were relying on the reviews of other people about Jesus. In the early church, people were relying on who people said Jesus was in order to know who Jesus is. 
And one of those people that was telling people about who Jesus was and why he was worth following was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. Uh, they probably didn't know each other growing up, to be honest, from what we understand from Scripture, but they were family. But John's role was to point people to Jesus, to offer the reviews, to be the influencer, to be the one to say, there's somebody coming who's better than you can imagine, and that's Jesus. In the story of John's gospel that we're taking some time to look through, early on in the gospel, John, people are wondering, is he the one that we've waited for? And he's saying, no, I'm not. There's somebody better. In John chapter 1, we see that Jesus went to John, the baptizer, and was baptized by him. And he said, this is the one we've been waiting for. John's job was to point people to Jesus. And we're going to jump in into the story that follows right after John baptized Jesus. And we're going to look at how different people heard this story or heard about Jesus from different places in life and how they responded to it. In John chapter 1, verse 29, it starts like this. It says, the next day, so this is just after John has baptized Jesus, says the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world. He's going to go on to say, he's the one I told you about. He's with, likely with his followers. John was a religious leader of a kind in his day. He was kind of an offshoot of the institution. He was very zealous. He was a person who was very eager, wanted people to know who God was, was telling everybody about it. We, t- we hear the story. He was living in the wilderness. His clothes was made of camel skin. He ate locust and honey. He was odd by most of our standards. But he understood what he was there for. He was to point people to Jesus. He didn't know it was Jesus. He would just call him the anointed one or the Messiah. And here he's had this experience where he baptized Jesus. And the next day he's with some people and he says, look, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Calling back to their understanding of the story of the Passover in which a lamb was sacrificed so that the angel of death would pass over the people. A reminder of a sacrifice that would free people. And John says, look, this one is the one, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And he's going to say in verse 34, he's going to say, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one or Messiah. In John's context, what they're looking for is a Messiah. A Messiah is someone who is anointed by God to lead the people to freedom. There's been prophecies throughout the Old Testament pointing to this, and the people in John's world were eager to find this person. Sometimes they would associate different people as this person, hoping they would be the Messiah, but they weren't the Messiah. And John says, well, I've seen it. I saw a dove descend from heaven. I heard a voice speak when I baptized him. He is the chosen one. So John, in the midst of his followers, sees Jesus coming and says, this is who we've been waiting for. 
This is him. He's giving his five-star review to Jesus right here, saying this is everything you've waited for. And the story continues, though, the next day. So in verse 35, it says, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he says, Look, the Lamb of God. So again, Jesus is walking by and he says, Look, the Lamb of God, calling back to what he just said the day before. The one who takes away the sins of the world. The one who's anointed. The one who is chosen. The one you've waited for. He says, look again, there's Jesus. And he says in the next verse, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. These two disciples who are with him choose to follow Jesus. Because John says, look, that's who you want. They'd been following John, and likely they'd been following John because they saw something in John that they weren't getting anywhere else. They were seeing in John a great devotion to God. They were seeing in John a very radical movement to be followers of God. That the religious institution in their reality just was not fulfilling. So they followed John. But John's point was, don't follow me, follow Jesus. He was pointing them in a different direction. He says, look, that's the one. So what do they do? They follow him. And then it says, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Now let's just, let's just pause there for just a brief moment. When the text says they followed him, they were literally walking behind him. Not like, hey, they started following Jesus, like trying to be just like Jesus, like we use that word maybe now in church life. They were stalking Jesus. They were being a little creepy. I don't know how like close they were. The text doesn't give us any indication. Were they kind of hiding behind bushes? Did they want Jesus to see him? I don't know. But Jesus turns around and goes, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, if someone is following you and you say, what do you want? And they say, hey, where do you live? Your first reaction probably isn't, what Jesus says right here. Your first reaction is, wow, this is really weird. But instead, Jesus says, hey, come and you will see. Come and see. He invites them to join. He invites them to see where he's staying. And the idea of where he's staying isn't just like his residence, isn't just where he's sleeping or eating. It's about his life. They want to know about his life. What's your life like, Jesus? John just said, you're the Lamb of God. John said, you take away the sins of the world. John said, you're the chosen one. Where does the chosen one live? What does the chosen one eat? They want to know. So they follow. So they went and saw he was, where he was staying, and they spent the, that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him, Peter, uh, Simon Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated to Peter. Let's think about this scenario. Two guys are following Jesus. Jesus says, Hey, what do you want? They say, We want to know where you live. Jesus says, okay, come and see. One of those guys says, I got to tell my brother. 
He goes to get his brother. And he brings him along. And the first interaction we get in the text, maybe there's other stuff said, but what we know from the text, is he says, I know this is your name. I don't like your name. It doesn't work for you. You're Peter. Now, in Jesus' context, for us, it's just like, this is wild. Like, this just, let's just admit the absurdity of this moment. But in Jesus' context, that's not that absurd. In fact, what he's doing is demonstrating that he is someone of great authority because people with great authority would rename people. And names are very important because names tag meaning to them. When we choose to name something within Jesus' context, it means that you are almost proclaiming a destiny for it. Some of us thought of this like when we had kids. We thought, let's get the coolest name possible that's the hardest to spell, that teachers will never be able to pronounce right, and proclaim a destiny on our children. And we named them John. No. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes we, but we think about that. We think of like, hey, what, is it, what does this name mean and why does it mean? What it does. Now, Simon was a perfectly fine name. I mean, I don't know if any of you are named Simon, but that's a perfectly fine name. In his context, it means two things. It means someone who's a listener and someone who has a flat nose. Amazingly, two things in one. But he was a listener. And then Jesus says, hey, that's a great name, but I got something better for you. You're the rock, not Dwayne Johnson. You're not going to be in movies, but you're going to be solid. You're going to be a foundational piece. He's proclaiming a destiny, a foundational piece of a movement that's to come. Jesus sees in Simon, who he renames Peter, something that Simon couldn't see in himself. Likely in the context that they're occurring with everything that's going on, Peter, it's a fisherman, comes from a long line of fishermen, but probably didn't always want to be a fisherman. Likely from what we know from the world at the time, he had probably done a lot of studying into God's word through the Old Testament. And he had probably followed a religious leader at some point. But that didn't pan out. If you follow a religious leader, part of the purpose is to eventually become a religious leader, to help a movement grow. But it didn't work out that way. Peter's a fisherman. And so Peter's probably wrestled with some disappointment in his life, how things didn't go the way maybe he had hoped they would. That things weren't the way he always desired. Maybe he had this grand picture. I don't know. I'm supposing these things. He had this grand picture of what life would be like. But he was just a fisherman. Just like his dad. Just like his grandfather. Just like his brother. Just a fisherman. Kind of a boring job. Pays the bills, but not too exciting. And likely he desired something more. But it wasn't happening. So when his brother comes along and says, hey, remember what you were looking for? The Messiah? We got him. He's here. He goes along. And his amazing encounter, his first encounter is that, hey, you know that life you were living? Simon, the listener, the flat-nosed one? You're disappointed in it, but I got something better. I see something in you you don't even see in yourself right now. You're the rock. You are solid. You are foundational. Jesus is able to see something in this person who's probably lived a life of disappointment that he never measured up to what he thought he would be or what he wished he could be or what other people thought he could be. And he says, actually, you do. 
you do. This very disappointed person encounters Jesus, and the first thing Jesus does says, you're not who you think you are. Then it says, in verse 43, the next day. So this is spanning three days. The first day, John the Baptist sees Jesus. He says, hey, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His followers are with him likely, and he explains the whole thing. He says, this is the one you've waited for. The next day, he sees Jesus again. Two of his followers are with him. And what do those two followers do? They follow Jesus. They go, yeah, that's the real deal. And then the third day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophet also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. In his excitement, in his zeal, he's saying, listen, you've got to see this guy. You've got to see what's going on. And this is early. There's much more to come. They know he's the one. They heard from John, John's story. They said, hey, this is true. And Jesus said, hey, come and see. And they did. They spent a whole day with him. And then the next day they said, oh, you've got to come and see. And then he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Daniel asked, he said, come and see, Philip. Nazareth, can anything good? So he's got this doubt within him. Now, likely Nathaniel had the same kind of upbringing as everybody else, same kind of religious tradition, same kind of hopefulness for this chosen one, for this Messiah, for this anointed one to be there. Same disappointment that he wasn't there. And Philip comes to him, he says, I've been too disappointed to believe this could be true. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. This is too little too late. I'm too skeptical. I've been burned by too many false people. I've been told too many times to come and see, and nothing was there. All those five-star reviews were lies. The snowblower still breaks. He's skeptical, understandably. He's disappointed. This this doesn't work out. Philip says, what? Oh, you just got to believe? No, he says, come and see. This is an interesting statement that he makes, and all of them make the same statement. It's just, come and see. They don't say, oh, just trust me. They say, come and see. Experience it. See what it's like. Don't just believe. Come and see. It says, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israel in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answers, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Three Different days, three different sets of people, one Jesus. The first one is an encounter with John. John, who'd already met Jesus, who baptized Jesus, who's actually related to Jesus, says, hey, this guy is who you've been waiting for, to everyone around him. This is the real deal. That's day one. He's 
everything you've waited for. Day two, we meet Peter, someone who's wrapped in disappointment and possibly despair, that things haven't worked out. And he's told to come, and he does. And Jesus' first encounter with him is not to say, hey, thanks for coming. He's saying, hey, I see in you something more than you can even imagine. All that disappointment isn't true. You are someone. Day three, we encounter Nathaniel, who says, ah, nothing good can come from Nazareth. Skeptical. Probably has thought time and time again something was better than it was and it wasn't. Probably thought time and time again there was a Messiah or somebody promised and they just didn't work out. Says, nah, nothing good can come from there. And Jesus encounters him and he says, hey, I see your doubt. I see your skepticism, but this is why it's true. I saw you. I saw you before you even saw me. And he says, you are who you say you are. Jesus encounters three groups of people, one who's incredibly zealous and passionate about who he is and knew even before he knew him that he was the one worth following. Then he encounters someone who's been deeply disappointed in the realities of life. And he says, I see something better in you than you can ever imagine. And he sees someone else who's just skeptical and isn't sure what to believe. And he says, well, I saw you before you saw me and brings him to belief. Three different encounters, three different places in life, and probably one of them is something you can relate to. Maybe you're somebody who is very zealous, passionate, and just loves God. That's fantastic. I admire that. I can be there sometimes. I don't know if I'm there always, but I love seeing people like that. Keep going. Go out in the wilderness. Get your camel skin. It's great. Be that person. Point people to Jesus. Remind them who he is. Maybe you're someone else, though. Maybe you're more like Peter, and you've kind of looked in your reflection, and you've wondered, man, things did not turn out the way I thought they would. I thought so much more would happen in my life. I thought God would be so much better for me, and I'm just disappointed. I can guarantee you, as you look at your own reflection, Jesus looks at you and sees something more than you can see in yourself, just as he did with Simon Peter. Or maybe you're someone who has done your searching. You tried to figure out who God is, or you tried to figure out where is their meaning in life, and you just kind of get disappointed, and you become skeptical by anybody else who says, oh, this is the true thing. Jesus sees you too, and he sees you where you are. The one thing I can guarantee you is that if we are looking for Jesus, he's looking to meet us. All three of these encounters are with people who are at different places in life, just like you and I. And the one thing that's consistent is Jesus goes to meet them where they are. Wherever you are, Jesus wants to meet you. It doesn't matter if you're skeptical, if you're dis disappointed, frustrated, angry, hurt. It doesn't matter if you're joyously worshiping him. He still wants to meet you wherever you are. And consistently, over and over, the story is that he does. He demonstrates it through his encounter with John, his encounter with Peter, his encounter with Nathaniel, and he will demonstrate it in his encounter with you. If you look for him, 
over and over again, if we are looking for Jesus, he is looking to meet us. Nothing will change that. For some of us, we can sometimes think, well, maybe I'm not seeing things the way I should. Maybe I'm not feeling like this encounter is real. And we go, well, well, what do I do about that? How do I actually meet with Jesus? And sometimes very well-meaning persons will say things like, well, you just need to believe more or you need to have more faith. But that's not at all what John is saying here in his gospel. In fact, it doesn't come up at all that you just need to believe more or have more faith. Every time, the invitation is not, oh, just more faith. You've got to be faithful. It's, no, come and see. Encounter. Meet. See what it's really like. Sometimes we think, okay, well, we just have to be more faithful. But it's not because of faith that these people follow Jesus. They followed Jesus because they went to see and realized it was real. And then they lived by faith. Faith isn't just something where you're like, I just got to believe it'll all be better. Faith is encountering Jesus and then living through with that encounter. If you're looking for Jesus, he is looking to meet you. It's not a matter of believing more. It's a matter of going to see him. You can do that through reading scripture. You can do that through talking with other people, maybe in a small group, maybe coming on Sunday morning, maybe reading some books, watching some YouTube videos. But you have to look. You can't just be passive. The invitation is to come and see, not sit and ignore. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a God who invites us, uh, invites us to encounter you, and not just to blindly believe anything, but to skeptically um, pursue truth, to pursue you, to look to find what is real in our life and ultimately to find you. Holy Spirit, I pray that we uh, honestly reflect on this, Reflect on your invitation, Jesus, to come and see you, to see who you are, to see what you've done, to see who you invite us to be. I thank you that you see in us more than we see in ourselves. And I thank you that you meet us wherever we find ourselves, whether in our zealousness, in our disappointment, or in our just doubt and skepticism. You're willing to meet us where we are and invite us to see more and more who you are so we can make our decisions. I pray wherever we find ourselves, maybe we're more like John, more like Peter, or more like Nathaniel. Wherever we find ourselves, I pray we come and see you and make that an important part of our daily life, to know you and be known more by you. And I just pray this in Jesus' name.